I'm dealing with 20 plus people a day um, in terms of consulting and, and often of a lot of them are brand new meeting me for the first time or being referred to me. But part of that is, is there are times where I really with my authority, with my knowledge, with my experiences, quite black and white, I actually just have to decline um, what people say to me. People Google, they, they read things and get advice or find advice online and blogs in all sorts of areas. Fascinating watching how people respond to such a simple thing as, I'm sorry actually, I don't accept, I've, I've read the studies, I know what the research says and I actually decline what you're, what you're asserting. Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, broadcasting from Ojai, California. This is the podcast for you, the ambitious professional who simply wants an advantage. Most of the people that listen to this, they, they don't want to settle for an ordinary life. They want real results, real satisfaction, not just at work, but in every area of life. Our featured interview is with Seanette Jagmahan, an optometrist living with his wife in Melbourne, Australia. As a health and business professional, there are a few reasons to pay careful attention to his journey. He offers an excellent case study in specialization, authority, and scarcity. In fact, he is now a fellow of the International Academy of Orthokeratology. An orthokeratologist is someone who uses a kind of contact lens to help reshape the eyes. And as I think you say this, you say, I help fix your eyes while you sleep. Is that right? That's correct. <laughs> All right. Seanette is one of the first of four to receive this fellowship in Australia, which makes him internationally recognized as possessing the highest level of knowledge, ethics, and, patients, uh, and patient care with respect to the practice of orthokeratology. Now, I think this is a great part of your journey, too. You, you said, being someone who is usually a yes to everything, positive about everything turning out, and wanting to keep options opened, you learned to decline and that you can now be known and revered for what you decline as well as what you accept. Later on, uh, Vice President Drew Knowles is gonna lead a conversation based on a quote from Kirkland Tibbles that's very relevant. He says, if you don't respect your own offers, no one else will. It's a great lesson in the willingness to decline. I love that about your notes. Seanette. And with that, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. You are welcome. Well, I'm going to start out and uh, just say, did I say all that right? Uh, why don't you say your name and uh, what you do so perhaps can get said correctly? Uh, John, you did fantastic. So my name is Seanette Jagmohan. I'm practicing in Melbourne, Victoria, Victoria in Australia. And my area of, uh, well, people come to see me about fixing their eyes while they sleep. It is a specialized contact lens. Uh, it's also been described as a mold that you put on the eye, you go to sleep, you wake up, you take it out, and then you can see for the next day to two days without needing any other vision aids, no other glasses or contacts. So it's a, as uh, what most people say when they first hear about it, they 
they think it's too good to be true and that they haven't, uh, why haven't they heard of it sooner? Uh, am I some, is there some sort of uh, witch doctor um, voodoo, ma voodoo magic that we're doing? But no, it's um, been studied and research has been out for the good part of the last 50 years on our ability to do this with the human eye. So I'm very privileged to be able to provide this solution to, to my patients. That's wonderful. Well, um, did you, is this a recent uh, part of your specialization or did you come into this quite early? Uh, when did that part of your journey begin? We had during university, we had one lecture on it. So in a five-year degree, we had uh, one to two hours about orthokeratology or ortho-K for short. Um, I knew very early on that I had passions with contact lenses, being able to provide vision solutions without glasses. Most optometrists in the class of 45 that were taken out of the whole of New Zealand, there was only about four or five of us that didn't have glasses. So most optometrists do need glasses or, or need contacts to see. So I was in a unique position where I knew what it was like to not need anything. Hmm. So because of that, I had always been... Uh, I'd always been interested in contact lenses and then this ability to even reshape the eye I thought was just phenomenal, just, just a whole, could provide a whole different world for people. And so straight after university, it was definitely something that I was interested in. And when I went to my, I gained a scholarship during university and I went to my first practice that did specialize in contact lenses, they, in that practice they did have a limited amount of experience with OrthoK. So I still increased my my knowledge, my uh, specialized knowledge. I did study. I was in contact with people who fitted OrthoK both in Australia and New Zealand. And it really was after my uh, second year out from university, which was six years ago, that I made the move to the active move to actually work in a practice that fitted OrthoK so I could get my hands, um, you know, get stuck into it and get my hands onto it. That's really great. Well, one of the reasons I was uh, eager to talk to you today is is because of your specialization. We have many people who study with us and they're small business owners or, or entrepreneurs or uh, work in certain situations. And we teach a lot about specialization. We teach uh, a lot about scarcity, um, uh, focus, and the like. And the first time you ever introduced yourself on a webinar, I believe it was the membership webinar, I was kind of blown away because it was so specialized and it was such a distinct way to talk about what you do that it was unforgettable. You know, yes. I, I, I remember, <laughs> I remember yeah. I fix people's eyes while they, while they sleep. And as far as an invitation goes, and we talk a lot about invitation and, and the kind of result that you want to produce with an invitation. Um, Absolutely. It was a great invitation. All right. Um, so I, I wanted to talk to you for, for quite a bit because I, you've been studying here since, when did you first start studying? With influence ecology, it would be two and a half to three years ago now, two and All a half right. years. So, um, so you've been studying with us for a while. I know you're doing very well now. Uh, the accolades that you've got are phenomenal. Congratulations to you on your fellowship. Um, that's thank you. That's it's really great. Um, 
I want to kind of go all the way to the end of your journey where you are now and find out a little bit more about what this uh, what this fellowship means because um, Drew has said some things to me about it and I want to make sure I understand. What exactly does this mean and, and uh, about you and what you've accomplished? Well, what this fellowship means is, um, as you noted earlier, is that it does, um, it means that being a fellow of the International Academy of Orthokeratology shows that I have demonstrated the highest level of knowledge, ethics and patient care with respect to the practice of fitting and getting results with OrthoK. It is a rigorous process where I sit written and oral exams and I am sitting in with some of the top fitters uh, internationally renowned for fitting OrthoK. Part of the, um, a huge part of the, the re- reason for gaining your fellowship is definitely the, the authority and being able to say that I can do things and get the results at that level. But the other part of it too is to be able to be in a position to share and mentor other optometrists and practitioners, uh, mm. definitely in Australia and New Zealand, but globally. And, and that's really something that um, has driven me in my degree and my passions and my gaining my specialized knowledge is that I really want more people fitting with okay. I don't want people um, having what you just, you know, the response that you had then, John, is, wow, like, what is this? Well, I've never heard of it before. I would love for more practitioners to be able to provide these, provide OrthoK as an option for, for patients. So part of the fellowship means that I'm in a position where I can now be of a, of a mentor to other practitioners who want to go down the track of being able to fit these lenses and provide the solution for other patients. So then what does this all mean to you as a business person? Because, you know, obviously you're uh, an ambitious person. You've, you, in some of what you sent to me, uh, you know, you say I've always been an, an ambitious achiever and the like. But as a business professional, I know you're a health professional and I know that you care greatly about people. You can hear that in how you talk and what matters to you. But as a business professional, taking care of yourself and your, and your wife and your journey and your family and, and so forth, what does all of that mean to you uh, as a business professional? Well, as a business professional and thinking about making sure that I'm, uh, you know, I am wanting to tend to taking care of myself, my family, um, and also my, my, uh, my boss and the practice I'm at, it means that having this fellowship has highlighted the very, very unique amount of or level of specialized knowledge that I as an individual have. So my value has uh, increased immensely. Um, it means that I am, I have been recognized at the highest level. And because of that, I can openly and I can openly say and advertise that when you do come to me, you really are getting someone who is, who really is at the top of their game when it comes to ortho K. If you want the best, come to me. And what that means is that as a practice, it means that as a reciprocation, I can then authentically say, look, I can, I can do that. I've been through the works. I know what, where the boundaries are. I can get the results that a lot of people may not be able to get because they haven't got the experience. And reciprocally, I can then ask for 
you know, being remunerated in terms of my value. I can, I can ask for something, I can ask for remuneration that I'm really worth. Very good. So um, if you think about um, talking to other professionals, um, one of the reasons we're doing podcasts is we want people to be able to learn from you. And since you're somebody that likes to have people learn from you, uh, what would you say to someone who's considering uh, a specialization or what would you say to someone who you know is general? Uh, what are your lessons for them? Well, my degree, optometry already in itself is is a, a niche or a specialized industry. So in New Zealand, there is 450 to 500 optometrists. In Australia, there's 5,000. So in terms of an industry, it is still a very small industry. And I started studying influence ecology, and I felt very privileged and, and, and very lucky that I was studying with, with peers who were trying to find out their offer that they could specialize in uh, an area of focus. And I thought to myself, well, I'm pretty lucky. You know, I already have a, a focus. And the more study I did, the more I realized that even within my small uh, industry of optometry, that it w I was still very general. I was still just another optometrist, someone who what most people would say when they need help with their eyes, they go see them and they're all the same, aren't they? They all do, they all do <laughs> the same thing. Right. And so being able to apply that, that accurate thinking and studying, particularly around um, focusing my offer, focusing who I want to be in the market, what is it that I want to be known for? I love talking to colleagues about, okay, well, we use the, we always use the, the, the um, soft drink as, you know, Coca-Cola or can I have a Kleenex? People just know that it's, uh, that it's a tissue. Well, when it comes to ortho-K, when it comes to looking after the eyes, I want it to be Vision Camberwell or Seanit Jagmorn. I, I just want it to just be synonymous. Ortho-K is just synonymous with Vision Camberwell where I'm at. And what it meant is that I really started to have to think about how do I get there in, a, in an industry that I could say I'm already lucky enough to be specialized. How do I specialize even more? And does that mean that when I specialize, does that mean that I'm going to have to decline other areas of subspecialty within my own optometry field? And that may include... Um, for example, kids' vision. Kids' vision is, is another subspecialty of, of optometry. And the way in which I used to talk to colleagues when I first started was, yeah, sure, I'm passionate about, about contact lenses, but, man, I'm really good with kids, and I'd like to make a difference with kids, and I'm really good with, with um, eye diseases, and I'm really good with dry eyes, and, you know, I'd really love to be able to be fantastic with all of that stuff. Now, what the, the study has, has taught me is the, the confidence and the ability to really be okay with, with not being the best in kids' vision, not being the best in those other areas, being able to say, okay, well, that's actually not in line with my focus of I want to be known for contact lenses. I want to be known for ortho K. I want to be known for the guy that that does this voodoo witch doctor stuff where they where I fix their vision while they sleep. <laughs> Whoa! Go go see go see Sean at the witch doctor. Whatever he does, it works. I don't know how he does it. And what did you go through 
What did you go through, just just as an aside perhaps, but in being able to decide, well, I'm not going to do kids, I'm not going to do this or that, I'm going to focus on this witch doctor bit <laughs> and your words. How did you, what, were, what did you go through in that uh deciding what you were not going to focus on? Well, first of all, John, I must say it's, it was really hard because at first I'd make a decision like I am going to focus on this area and there'd always be little thoughts and comments coming in the back of my mind. Oh, but what about this? Or maybe I could get away with that or I could still possibly do this. But as I started to constantly go back to thinking about, well, what is it that is going to fulfill me? What is it that I want? What is it that that I want to be able to provide to patients? What do I want to be known for in the marketplace in terms of along my along with my peers and my colleagues? Um, it was a matter of going back to to what is it that I want to be known for and what is going to fulfill my own passions? What is it going to fulfill my own needs? What is going to fulfill my own aims? Um, that also included. Um, what kinds of practices that I could work at, what kinds of people I'd be dealing with all day, every day. So, for example, as much as I absolutely love making a difference to uh, kids and, and younger adults, I really got clear that it is, for me as, as an individual, it's really draining. It's really draining seeing kids all day, every day. And I love that people are out there doing that, but I really was clear that as much as I can do it and and I could do it well, um, it's actually not a, not how I wanted to see myself over the next 5, 10, 20 years. It was not something that was going to fulfill me in my in what I do in my everyday work. Let's just stop on, on that point for just a second because what you're pointing to is the condition of life work, so what you're doing each day with your mind and your body. And many people don't stop to think about what I don't want to be doing. Um, Correct. There are so many lessons we have from people who they say, oh, I want to do this, or I want to do that, or I want to be this, or I want to be that. And they, they rarely think about what it would look like to be doing that. Um, and we have people who come back and say, wow, I realized if I did that, I'd spend my life on a plane, or I'd spend my life in hotels, or I'd be working all day you know, with my uh, being dirty or whatever it might be. So, so it's, a, it's a great lesson in that. Is there anything else to underscore about your own personal journey and deciding what you didn't want to do? Well, just on top of that too, John, I think another thing was that it's almost like the, you know, society saying that sort of stuff isn't correct. You know, even just mm -hmm. then saying that, well, I don't really want to, it's actually really draining to see kids every day, all day, and I actually don't want to do that. You know, there's this, even just then when I saying that out loud, I had this kind of thing of, you know, that's not really the right thing to say. You know, that's, that's not really someone who, that's not really uh, ethical or fair or nice and all that, you know, not in terms person. of society. <laughs> yeah, I'm a horrible person for saying that. Um, and I think part of just going on to what you said is, is that, a lot of what drives or a lot of the thinking that we, you could almost say we don't do is because we just accept the notion of, well, I just actually shouldn't think like that. Hmm. I just, I just really shouldn't think, well, really, do I want to spend every day all day with seeing people under 10? Well, 
actually no when I really think about it it's it's not re- really what I want to be doing with myself every single day yeah it's a it, it's a very good lesson I I watch a lot of people struggle with the same kind of thing there are all the kinds of things that um, that we think we should be doing another aspect of it Sean it is um, there seems to be a notion that we should work really hard um, that we should that, you know we should we should, if we're if we're working hard, we're valuable people. Um, so when someone looks at the condition of life work and says, "Okay, well, what do I don't want to do? What do I not want to be doing? How much do I want to work, or how little do I want to work?" And if I'm looking at the puzzle called, "All right, well, I only want to work four days a week. I want to work 35 hours a week. I want to make a lot of money." What's the solution to that puzzle? It sounds like you you did a lot of reflecting personally on, on on those different conditions, money, work, career, and so forth, and your aims. You got clear about your aims, and then you started to move in this direction. Anything else about the journey into this specialization and what you went through personally? One thing I'd like to also add is um, part of being able to um, – so you did just mention there having to think accurately about my different conditions of life, work, money, career, health, and what having those clear aims, really spending time to actually be in an inquiry and think about really what those aims would be and also be in a dialogue. I wasn't, I wasn't by myself. I did it with my study group. I did it with my partner really being in an open dialogue about what is it that I want, how do I want those conditions of life to be tended to? And when I could really start to get a clearer picture, it became a lot easier to decline those other avenues. And that has been something that has really stuck with me is that when the right amount of thinking has been done about really what is it that I want, really what is it that my practice owner wants really what is it that my what we want for the business when those aims are really clear it became a lot easier to to accept and decline um, the the things that weren't going to be in line with fulfilling those aims and what it meant for me John is that I was in a business in in the Gold Coast and I was in a and with with a practice owner who was highly highly ambitious and wanted to be the best at everything and be the best at tending to ortho K as well as macular health, as well as a few other things as well. And we'd have conversations about creating the the monthly budget. And the monthly budget ended up being, all right, with ortho K, let's do this. But then with the macular stuff, let's do this. And with the, and all of a sudden I had all these, these, these aims for the practice for that month that were just unrealistic. And what I really saw was that it was part of this think positive, it'll all be okay, let's let's make some really high goals and let's just aim for it. And even if we don't get there, we're still succeeding. And and what I noticed is also is that it was just like a scatter effect. There was no focus. And so having done the thinking of what market identity I wanted to build for myself and having done the, the thinking of um, what I wanted to provide for the practice, reciprocating, I was able to sit down with my boss and say, well, hey, look, this actually doesn't work because it's too, it's not focused 
And these are the focus areas where all of a sudden there's some macular stuff or other stuff. Um, I just have to decline those, those aims. Those goals for the month are, one, completely unfounded. They're not by fact. And two, I, I'm telling you right now that I'm not focusing on that because they're just unrealistic. And, and obviously I did it in a way in which I had evidence and he really knew that I, I was there to help him and I was there to kick some goals for his practice and I already was. So it's so I already had the the evidence of, all right, Sean, it does accurate thinking, but because I had already demonstrated what I'm capable of doing, I was able to even then in a dialogue within my own company, within my own, within my own, uh, with my own colleagues, I was be able to decline these other areas that were unfocused, unfounded, unrealistic, and also not in line with with the the momentum and the focus that me as a as an individual and also us as a business had already started to build. This is very good. It's one of my favorite parts of, of the notes that you sent. You wrote down one of the lessons that we teach here, which is that you are known more for what you decline than what you accept. And we talk often about authority. We talk often about um, moving in a way that produces a kind of of distance or scarcity, if you will. And so you've spoken directly to declining and the the impact that this has on your identity, uh, on the way in which you transact. And I was wondering, uh, first of all, if you had anything to say about that generally, because it's so good and you just talked a little bit about it. But I also want to find out what that was like for you as a performer. You identify uh, as a performer personality. That's one of the, the personalities that we teach. And a performer is a particular kind of, uh, uh, they demonstrate a kind of transactional behavior where declining is not easy. And so those two things, I know that was a lot, but, but uh, a little bit more about your journey and, and how it impacted your authority. And then what was it like for you personally as a performer declining? Look, in terms of talking generally, one of the things that I've gotten out of declining is, is it really is something that is just not normal to do in this day and age. It's just, you just don't do it. People don't decline. People, people in society, when you're having conversations, when people make assertions, when they make statements, when they are telling their opinion about something or how something should be or shouldn't be or what could have happened if XYZ or any of those types of statements and assertions. It's just not normal for us as a society, as human beings, to just kind of go, well, no, I decline. That's, that's unfounded. That's just not even coming from, from facts and um, I just don't accept. Um, and there's also this notion of in society, um, and John, I'm almost getting on my soapbox here with this. Please, is, I love soapbox. <laughs> is, um, gasoline is that, all over it. Is that um, when we when you do decline, when you're in, a, in an interaction and transaction with someone and you do decline, it's always the, the onus of the person who's declining to, to justify why. So it's almost like you can go around and do and say whatever you want, but as soon as someone declines it, the person that declines it or doesn't accept it has to justify why. And it's a fascinating sort of normality that 
that I find myself in. I'm, I'm dealing with 20 plus people a day um, in terms of consulting and, and often of a lot of them are brand new, meeting me for the first time or being referred to me. And so there is always a constant interaction and exchange of ideas and thoughts and I'm very open to, uh, my consultations are very two-way. Uh, as a performer, I love, you know, I tell people I have the best job in the world. I spend all day talking to people and helping them out. Um, but part of that is, is there are times where I really, with my authority, with my knowledge, with my experiences, quite black and white, I actually just have to decline um, what people say to me. People Google, they, they read things and get advice or find advice online and blogs in all sorts of areas. Uh, I think that's... Um, that's quite uh, that's built a lot of fires in the medical industry in general um and i'm and i'm part of that and i have to black and white decline and it's fascinating watching how people respond to such a simple thing as i'm sorry actually i don't accept i've i've read the studies i know what the research says and i actually decline what you're what you're asserting and how do they how do they often react when you do that do you know what john most people don't you can you can tell that they're a little bit taken aback. They're they're taken aback. I think because of the the bl you could say the bluntness of it. Even if you do try and say it nicely, that just being so clear that you just do not accept or you decline what they've just said or they what they've asserted. Most people are taken aback, uh, like they've been offended, like they've been wronged, like like there's been a personal attack at them. Um, now, I would say it's, in my consulting situation, it's very rarely turns into a, a, a huge event uh, because by that stage, I'm and having done the work that I've done, I, I'm very, I've already built up my authority, I've already built up rapport and a, and a relationship that, that they kind of get that there is a reason for why I'm saying what I'm saying. And I also make it very clear that if I decline and they don't, they don't accept my decline, that's okay as well. Because the thing is that I know what I'm talking about because I've done all the study and I'm constantly working more and more to make sure that I'm at the top of my game. All right, that's very good. So um, I, I said two things. As a performer, is there anything else about what you've dealt with in your experience of declining and, you know, and your performer want to take care of the relationship. What what has that part been like? Oh, John, it's been horrible. <laughs> it's been yes. absolutely horrible, <laughs> uh, and and I and it still is difficult. So for me, why don't I? You, so, why don't you say a little bit about performer for just a second and what we mean by that for for our audience? Sure. So being uh, relating or to a, a performer personality, I am someone who my my main area of strength and my main um, goal is to always create relationships and keep relationships with people. I am a people person. I love people. I love talking to them. I like listening to them. I like being with them. And the thing that I get most satisfaction out naturally, biologically, is maintaining that relationship with people. And what that means is that as a, as a performer personality is that I am often very positive, very yes, very accepting. I'm, I don't confront, I don't decline, because confronting and declining does the opposite in relationships. People don't like it. People don't like 
confronting, declining, people don't like there being any tension. So being a performer personality, I naturally just, that stuff just does not occur. If there's a little bit of tension that comes in, I'm in there and smoothening that stuff out and making people love being with me and hanging out with me. We're all friends, all good. I'm here for you. Very well said. All right, good. Well, I, I'm a little bit, uh, I, I want to go back to this thing about declining for just a moment uh, from, a, uh, let me say it this way. Um, sometimes, I, I'm imagining that some people listening might might wonder, well, why would it matter so much that you get good at declining? And you've addressed that a little bit, but given that we say you are known more for what you decline than what you accept, how come you're focused on and practicing uh, declining? Well, in, in line of talking about focusing, focusing and building specialized knowledge, focusing and building a market identity, being known as someone or known for something in the marketplace, I would assert that the only way you get there is declining all the other stuff that dilutes that. And I'd also assert that it's not a a one-off thing. It's something that you've got to, you are constantly doing all the time. We are always getting offers, invitations, requests that will dilute that focus of building that market identity, building that specialized knowledge. And the only way in which you can really powerfully build that is actually by declining the other stuff. And the only way in which you can be better and better at seeing those things and declining it more efficiently and quickly and without it turning into, you know, your worst nightmare is by practicing it, deliberately practicing it, practicing it on the small things so that the bigger things get easier. And so continuing that deliberate practice. It's very well said. All right, I want to go back to uh, your soapbox for just a moment because um, uh, in the way that you said it, it may have gotten a little bit confusing for people uh, because you talked about the onus being on the person who does the uh, declining. So let's just make this very, very clear. So what you're saying is, is that often is the case that when you decline, something you decline someone you know if someone presents something as a fact or somebody uh, presents a judgment and you decline it seems as if the onus is often on you to back up why you decline as opposed to putting the onus on the person presenting the you know the judgment presenting what they think to be true and saying something back to them like well, I don't accept what is your evidence for that statement. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I was saying, John. Absolutely. And so your your let's talk a little bit about this the uh, the way that it is and I, I think this is very good because you you point to what we call the current and uh, other podcasts we've talked a lot about the current and what we mean by the current. So the current is sort of the you know the the narrative that sweeps through uh, sweeps through the land. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily care for truth uh, or fact, but oftentimes people will say something, and 
um, we will sit there. We won't say anything. We'll let it go by. Uh, and on this notion, so you you subboxed a bit about that. Um, is there anything you'd like to say about why you think it is the way it is now? And well, let's start start there. Why do you think it is the way it is now? Look, I would think for me, John, I think it's the fact that in the the world we live in now, we are just absolutely bombarded with information. We've got information through how many different avenues. You've got it at the, the touch of your finger in regards to your mobile phone. And there is this, this naivete where the current, where people believe what they read. They believe what they see. They have no... They never qualify someone before accepting what they hear or what they read. There is this this notion in in the current in society where if it's said or if it's if it's written down, it's true. And I think um, in in recent history, even in the last couple of decades, that if you were to question that, and this is even on sort of larger scales with with government and health and policy. I think the people that often question those things are the, are the people that are seen as as not conforming, not consistent, not good. They must be bad because they're kind of questioning why, why well, they're questioning. And it's almost become just accepted that what you read and what you what you read and what you hear is is must be true. And if you're questioning it, then there's not something not quite right about you. You're you're skeptical. You you're you must live at home and put tinfoil on your head because you don't want the government to you know read your brain. Um, you it really is normal now um, for for that questioning to be not good. And I think that's because of the the consequences and how it the consequences of those in the past who have stood up and who have actually questioned other people and other larger you know governments and things like that and in terms of what kind of uh, media coverage and what kind of slandering and what kind of uh, what kind of light that they are seen as and it stops people from doing it in their everyday life. Today, I offer a talk by Vice President Drew Knowles on the subject of declines. Uh, it's a great follow-up to the authority we just touched on in the interview with Seanit. This is an excerpt from the Fundamentals of Transaction program, which is a six-month program that helps people study and practice transactional competence, much of what we've been talking about today. And in this talk, he leads a conversation based on a quote from Kirkland Tibbles, and the quote is, if you don't respect your own offers, no one else will. It's a great lesson in the willingness to decline. You're always transacting. You, sitting in your chair, walking around your office, whatever you're doing on this session, you're transacting right now, and you're doing that to satisfy all of your conditions of life. And so is everyone else. Every other human being you bump up against out there in your life, they're also transacting for all of their conditions of life to live a satisfied life. The topic we want to get into today is are you somebody who is willing to decline? One of the questions you may be asking yourself after the session and starting to look and explore and examine throughout 
all different areas of your life, how willing are you to decline? And when do you decline? Why do you decline? One of the things that you'll see throughout this program is we're going to do a lot of work on your aims. Your aims are so important. They're so important in each and every condition of life that you have. You're going to focus on work. You're going to focus on career, money, and health, and some other areas. When your aims are clear, you are much more willing and able to decline. To decline what? Any opportunity to occupy your mind or body in any way that comes across your screen. Ambitious adults, those who are in this program, those who are listening who are in our advanced programs, you can relate to this, are inundated by invitations, offers, all sorts of requests from other people in all different conditions of life. When you stay present to your aims, when your aims guide you, in each of your conditions, and you're informed by the commitments, the commitments you already have, the promises you already have, the obligations, the things that are already in place, this is going to be these aims and these commitments, promises, and obligations you have are going to be your greatest guide for what invitations, offers, and requests will or will not offer you the best use of your time, energy, talent, and concerns. And I was asked uh, last week by somebody who's in a program that's a little bit later than yours, and they were starting to look at this condition of life, work. For those of you who've just started your program, to start to think about work, all you want to get your head around is it's everything. Work is every activity you occupy your mind, body with. It's all the things you're doing. It's walking the dog. It's hanging out with your spouse. It's sitting in the office typing. So... When you're thinking about accurately using your mind-body, you're talking about how do I want to occupy myself? How do I want to use my mind-body? And that's where declining is so powerful and so useful. You are defined, we, you, are defined as much, if not more, by what you decline, by what you're willing to decline, as you are by what you accept. And some of you are people who just accept too many things. Someone comes to you with a problem or an issue or something that you really probably shouldn't accept to occupy yourself with, and you do. Why? Because you're a nice person. Or you don't have any other, any other reason not to. Or you don't actually know how to decline and leave the person completely respected. One of the things that Kirkland Tibbles at some point said, which, John, I love as a quote here, is that, if you don't respect your own offer, no one else will. And that could be your own offer in your business, where some of you aren't willing to decline somebody's business and you'll take any customer, any client, just because, well, you know, can't turn them away. I might, you know, I should take the money or whatever reason, or I should just help them out. And then they end up being really high cost and they dilute your business offer. Or... You could look at this like if you don't respect your own offer of help, if you don't respect the value of your help that you could offer in other conditions of life to people, then no one else will. And you'll, get, you'll continue to get people asking you to do things and accept things that are probably outside the scope of what you should. 
That's why in the Fundamentals of Transaction program, we focus on these conditions of life, health, work, money, and career. And we tend to, we start to get you oriented around taking care of the others. But those four threaten and strengthen everything else. And often there's competing commitments and things you're having to deal with whether or not you decline. At study paper seven, you're going to start to get into what are your ethics around your aims for each of these conditions of life. And on the heels of this conversation about declining, as you start to get clearer about your ethics and you get your aims clear later in the program, you're going to find it much easier to decline. Now, what are we talking about declines? There are so many different kinds of declines and ways you decline. Most of them are obvious. One of the ones that's not as obvious, John, that I think often people at Influence Ecology, when they come and study with us, they've never really even considered it. I've got so many examples of this myself and with other advanced members. Do you accept people's declines? Well, you could accept someone's decline when they say no or they say, I don't want to accept your offer, or no thanks. And you want to accept those declines from your invitations and offers and requests powerfully in the proper moods and attitudes and respect that demonstrates your commitments and ethics. Those are the kinds of declines we're talking about that are expressed by others. It's very obvious. They said no. They responded in some way that had you see that they have said no at this time. But then there's the kinds of kind of declines that are demonstrated by others. I think there might even be, I'm not sure if there's any people on this session, that at some point might have been when you were first looking to see whether or not you wanted to find out about influence ecology. If you didn't respond to me within approximately seven days, especially if somebody who referred you had said, yes, they're open to talking to you and they've actually accepted an invitation to speak to you and then I engage you and then you ignore my email or my phone call and you don't respond within seven days. I don't know if there's anyone here, but there, that's often people who come into Influence Ecology. That's what's happened at some point. And one way that I got your attention and also had you understand that you best respect my offer or my invitation is that I'm going to take it away if you don't respond or you ignore it or you just are indifferent. So sometimes people will demonstrate through their lack of action or their lack of response that they're actually declining your invitation, your offer or your request. And a very powerful move you can make as a tactic but also a way to demonstrate your own identity out there in the marketplace and the respect you have for it is that you can accept their decline on their behalf. I see, uh, you know, say, Michael Dipman, you know, say if we were in a transaction, um, and I know you practice this yourself, Michael, as one, of, as one of our advanced members, I would, if I hadn't heard from you, simply say something like, Michael, I haven't heard from you. I'm not sure if you got my email. Uh, you did say you're interested in speaking to me, but I because I haven't heard from you at this time, I'm going to take it that your lack of response is a no for now, and I'm going to go ahead and withdraw the invitation, and I won't contact you again about this particular thing. Thank you very much. If this is not the case, please let me know. Otherwise, you know, best of luck with everything else, or some version of that. And 
when you're willing to do that and you're willing to move that way and you're actually willing yourself to put a timeline and a deadline on when you want a response, not cross my fingers, hope like anything that this prospect that I've, you know, that I'm trying to get into the pipeline so I can actually get in a conversation with them to you know, offer them my service or my product, hopefully they'll get back to me and I'll wait. I'll wait for all these people that I've sent invitations and requests and you know, offers or you know, want them to come to this particular event or this party or whatever it might be, business or social. I'm going to wait and I'll hope that they get back to me. You'll probably find you're ineffective. You take a lot longer to move things forward with your, with your sales or getting people to accept your invitations, your offers and requests. And people think that they've just got all the time they want to respond to you. So what we're trying to get you to organize yourself around here is the best way to say it, is when people demonstrate a decline, when they're indifferent, they're not responding, and they're giving you no indication of when they will, you can move as an ambitious adult and accept their decline on their behalf. And there are lots of ways to do that. And when we open it up to questions, please feel free to ask, what are the different ways? How do you do that? What would it look like for me? So the next thing I want to talk about is declining judgments, assessments, and assertions. This is another kind of decline that I think, John, is, again, not obvious for people. And we have this thing we talk about in influence ecology called the current. The current is the sea of narratives or opinions or views, is one way you could think about it, that we're swimming in in the marketplace in any different discourse or industry or segment of the market or social group or ecology, there are narratives that dominate at different times. And we're mostly swept up in those narratives. When people make certain judgments about things or assessments or assertions, and we don't stop and think, do I accept the judgment that person that just made about me? Do I accept the assessment they just made? Do I accept the assertion they just made? Hmm, I'm not sure if I do, but I'm just going to sit here and say nothing because you know I don't want to agitate the person by questioning or challenging it. Well, when you say nothing, it is not the same thing as declining. It's not the same thing. You can sit there in your head, even shaking your head, and having a little dialogue with yourself about that you don't accept what they've said, but you've just gone along with it, and in a way, you've let it go, and therefore, by default, accepted it, and let that particular narrative or conversation keep going, and keep playing out. Authority is built on what you decline. You want to remember, as we said earlier, we're defined as much, if not more, by what we decline as we are by what we accept. If you'd like to know more about influence ecology and our approach, check out our webinar, Ambitious Living, The Eight Defining Principles. The webinar is available globally. We'll teach you the core principles practiced by the most successful and effective men and women we know. This webinar is for those who aspire to an influential life that provides measurable satisfaction for themselves, their family, and their organizations. This webinar is specifically designed for those who don't want to sacrifice a well-balanced life for superior financial rewards. They want it all. 
To find out more, you can find the link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word AMBITION to 805-262-9008 and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word AMBITION to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please find us on iTunes and subscribe, review, like, and share. Help to get the word out and make this podcast a huge success. Thank you for another great episode of the Influence Ecology Podcast. I'm your host, John Patterson. I want to thank our guest, Seanet Jagmahan, for offering his time and wisdom. This podcast is made possible by the brilliant work of the Influence Ecology staff, mentors, and members around the world. We're grateful for co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and his 30-plus years of specialized study and practice that make all this possible. And finally, thanks to our producer, Jason Kelly, Marcus Bell, editing and music by Bell Ringer Productions, music supervision, Dashley LeCorps, and Marcus Bell.